Father, we are so grateful for that grace that we just sang about, the grace that abounds to those of us who had sinned and wandered and rebelled against you. Lord, help us to see your heart today as we look at how you dealt with your people who are wandering. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're continuing our sermon series entitled The Story of the Bible. Not all of the Bible is about rebellion, but that's what we're going to talk about today. And if you remember from last Sunday, the rebellion kind of started with King Solomon. Well, actually, you could say it started with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But King Solomon did something that really hurt the nation of Israel, something from which the nation of Israel never recovered. He introduced worship of foreign gods. There had already been some worship of foreign gods in there, but King Solomon established altars for worshiping foreign gods. And as we move into the next stage of Israel's history, the important question becomes, will God's people be faithful to him? Will they walk in faith, or will they worship other gods? Now, it's interesting in the Bible, during the the reigns of the first three kings of Israel, so that's King Saul and David and Solomon, about 120 years, You could say that the main character of the Bible during those stories, obviously it's God, but the the other main character was the king. And there are are books that are written about Saul and David and Solomon. But, you see, after Solomon, the role of the prophet became more important. And there's a reason for that. The king of Israel was supposed to lead the people to worship the one true God, but King Solomon failed tragically at that point. So God, in his mercy, raised up another group of people called the prophets that would in many ways lead the nation of Israel the way that they were supposed to go. That's why the last 17 books of our Old Testament are written from the viewpoint of the prophet. The first of those 17 books is the book of Isaiah, and that's the one that we're going to look at today. We're going to look at chapter 1 of Isaiah. And it's not a pretty picture. In fact, When I was in seminary and I was starting this story of the Bible series that I I had in my mind back then, I asked one of my seminary professors, Dr. Cole, I said, what is the lowest point in Israel's history in the Old Testament? I, I I wanted to find out from him what is the worst place in the Old Testament. And he thought about it for a while and he said, Isaiah 1. So that's what we're going to look at today. And the key word in this chapter could perhaps be rebellion. In fact, it's uh, such an important topic that there are three different words for rebellion. You know how snow is important to Eskimos, so they have like 50 words for snow? Well, rebellion was so important here that they came up with three different words for rebellion, and it comes up at, at five different points in our chapter today. It's, and one of these, the most important one perhaps, is, is in verse 2, which we'll get to in just a moment. And it's the same word used there for rebellion that's used of Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. So that's the kind of rebellion that we're talking about. And here's the basic idea. God has a path for us, a path that he wants us to walk on, but human history has shown and our lives have shown that the human heart is prone to rebellion. And all too often we humans choose this path that would lead us away from God. But what's amazing is that Isaiah 1 isn't only about rebellion because one other thing that we'll see in this chapter is we see the heart of God for rebels. So this chapter depicting what might be and what my seminary professor said was the lowest time in Israel's history comes with it this amazing picture of God's grace and forgiveness. 
God warns them also of the punishment that will come if they continue to rebel against him. In fact, that's kind of how I want to frame the sermon today, is we've got the rebellion of the people, but we also have the warning from God of what would happen. And within that warning is an offer of life. So I want to talk about warning and punishment. And I want to ask you a question. And I, Boy, I'm, I'm tempted every once in a while to have an open mic time and have you all share, but the question is, what was one of the worst punishments you ever received? What was, what was something that you did, maybe in your childhood, and it was just so bad that you had to get punished for it? Something that you deserve. So just think about that. Or another one that I thought about was, um, what was the worst punishment that you were threatened with as kids? Did any, any of your parents, and I don't want to see a raise of hands on this one, but did any of your parents ever say, if you keep doing that, we're going to send you to jail? Did anybody have, that, that's a terrible thing to say. I hope you're... Uh, parents didn't say that one to you, but I have another one, another warning that my brother and I received that uh, maybe some of you can relate with. It had to do with driving in the car, and there were, there were two of us kids in the back seat, and there was an imaginary line down the middle. Do any of you kids know what I'm talking about? And the hands are not to cross that line, but every once in a while, a fingernail would just come right up to that line and would cross the line and it would cause the other person to go even farther across the line, and pretty soon we're fighting back and forth in the back of the car. My fault, I, I, I agree. It's what I'm about to say came about because of my poor actions. But can any of you relate to me? Here's what happened then from the, the front seat of the car. My dad is driving. He puts his hand on the passenger seat, turns around and says, if you kids don't stop it, I'm going to come back there. And, and for me, what it felt like was like minutes that he was just looking back in the back seat and I was so terrified of him driving off the road that in my heart I said, I'll do whatever you want to, Dad. Just please look at the road again. Uh, now, I'd like to say that that just instantly cleared up every problem, but uh, it didn't necessarily change my heart. But there's a, a time and a place for punishment, right? And, and on that line, I just want to say a word about punishment. God is the God who punishes. Yes, he is the God of love, and that is something super important that we have to remember about God. He's the God of love, but he loves us so much that he doesn't want us to stay in our rebellion against him. So what does he do? He warns us. And that's what we're going to see in his word today. We're going to see his warning and God's heart that his people would come back to him. And yes, there is a further stage of punishment for those who will never cease from their rebellion for those who will never put their faith in Jesus Christ there is eternal punishment but I would also like to tell you that God has fully warned us about that in his word and consider yourselves warned today I don't want any of you to go there and I would say neither does God so what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through Isaiah 1 just a few verses at a time and I want you to see how God's people had rebelled and how God responds to that rebellion. And I want you to consider your own heart in this. So we'll start with uh, Isaiah 1.1, and we're just going to go through this kind of a, a short section at a time through the chapter. So Isaiah 1.1, The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And again, just to reiterate, God raised up prophets in these times to speak to the people because... All too often, the kings weren't doing it right and the people weren't doing it right. So he sent the prophet. Okay, and then let's move on to verses 2 through 4. And these, to me, are the verses that frame the entire chapter. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, 
but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel, and turned their backs on him. Now again, the key word in this chapter might be rebellion, and we see it right there in verse 2. God brought children up, but they rebelled. And God compared his children to the ox and the donkey, and perhaps surprisingly, the ox and the donkey come out ahead in this comparison. Because even the donkey knows where to get his food. Now, I don't know much about oxen or donkeys, but I did have a cat growing up. And our cat was one of those, do any of you have a cat that just didn't really have a great need for human touch or interaction? Um, So our cat would often just be gone. And uh, sometimes we would want to find our cat. And one of the things that we could do to find our cat would be to set the food dish down and pour the food in the dish so that it would make a loud noise as we were pouring it. And oftentimes our cat would come because... She knew where to get her food. And what God is saying here of his people is that his people didn't know their master and they didn't even know where to get their food. Now, obviously, we're talking about a spiritual principle here. We're not just talking about physical food. And what it's saying is Israel didn't know where to get their spiritual food. It reminds me of Deuteronomy 8.3, which was before Isaiah. It says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The people of Israel had forgotten that. That's why Isaiah was raised up to warn the people, because the human heart tends to wander. Please know that about yourself. But God keeps us close to him as we follow his word. But in the rebellion, the people of Israel had come to the point where they didn't know and they didn't understand. And like it says in verse 4 then, that they were a sinful nation and that they had become a brood of evildoers. So it's interesting. They hadn't just wandered from the Lord by this point then. They had also wandered away from doing what was right in their relationships, relationships with each other. So they were breaking what Jesus called the first and the second greatest commands. Remember, somebody asked Jesus what's the greatest command? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what Jesus said. And he added the second one, the second greatest command, which is that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. So as Israel had strayed away from the Lord, this is interesting to me, they had also stopped doing what was right towards each other. And uh, let me just pause for a moment here and do a little social commentary on America in 2017. In my opinion, our nation has totally, well, not everybody, but our nation has forgotten the first greatest command, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And instead what we have done, and you hear this all over the place, is that we have elevated that second greatest command to what we say is the greatest one, that we say that we want to love our neighbor as ourselves. But I would like to suggest to you that if we forget to love God, that our love for our neighbor will run out. And I think that that's what we see in our nation today, that although we have people all over the place that say that they want to love their neighbor, I think what we see is our nation not doing a very good job at it. And to me, the reason is is because we do not, as a nation, have the love of God overflowing through us to empower us to love our neighbor. So do you see how, how tricky that can be? That, that people think that the, the best thing that we can do would be to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
when actually God has told us that the most important thing is to love the Lord our God. And it's only in that that we will have the strength to love our neighbor. Israel got this wrong as well. They wandered from God. In fact, it even says there in verse 4 that they turned their backs on him, or that phrase could also mean that they were estranged from him. Now, what happens? What should we expect if people wander away from God? Should we expect blessing? Well, look at verses 5 through 9. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Your country is desolate, your city is burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. So, in their rebellion against God, the people had already started to face some of the consequences. In those days, foreign nations often came in and attacked Israel. And it's easy for us to see why God allowed that to happen. He allowed it as punishment. They were supposed to wake up and see that they had wandered from God. And in verse 9, God compared the people of Israel to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's worse than even being compared to a Packers fan, okay? Uh, way worse, actually. And all kidding aside, Sodom and Gomorrah were, were terribly wicked places, and they were destroyed because of their sinful behavior. And what we see here in Isaiah 1 is that it was only the mercy of God that prevented Israel from getting the same punishment. In their wickedness, they deserved punishment, but God instead sent Isaiah to warn them. You see, hear the heart of God in this. God is a loving Father, and He does not want to destroy. He wants His rebellious people to turn away from their rebellion and to turn towards Him. And it's, it's the same for us today. We have all sinned. We have all acted as rebels, but God loves us and wants us to be in a right relationship with Him. Well, let's move on now to verses 10 through 15 to see more of what was wrong with the people. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Now, this might come as a surprise, but the wicked, rebellious people of Israel still, for some reason acted with a form of religiosity. Even though their hearts were straying from God, for some reason they kept doing religious things. And maybe they thought that as their hearts were straying from God, that God would still accept their sacrifices and be pleased with them. So was God pleased? Not a chance. In verse 11, God reminded the people that he had no need of animals. It wasn't that he was hungry and he needed them to feed him. God didn't ask the people to come before him like that. In fact, God asked them in verse 13 to stop 
bringing meaningless offerings. Even though the Old Testament repeatedly required that the people come before him at new moons and Sabbaths and convocations, God, at this point in Israel's history, told them that they might as well stop bringing those offerings. It even says in verse 14 that God hated those offerings that they were giving. They had become detestable. And then something startling happens in verse 15, where God tells them that he wouldn't even listen to their prayers. Now, you ever heard this one? Uh, God is never more than a prayer away. Raise your hand if you've heard that or something like, God is never more than a prayer away. It's true, sometimes, but not always. And I'm going to get into the good news of this a little bit later, but let me tell you something. God is not required to hear your prayers. If you are praying with a, a wandering, rebellious heart, going away from God, but then you go up to God and give Him your request, He doesn't have to answer. He doesn't even have to listen to you. See, we humans, we often pretend to worship God. We often come up with our own definition of what pleases God. We were talking about this this morning in Sunday school. We come up with our own ideas and we assume sometimes that God is pleased with us when actually we're going our own way and we're disregarding his righteousness and his justice and his word. Perhaps, though, we might think if we just go to church occasionally and offer some prayers that God will be pleased. But as one theologian said, as I was reading this week, the solution to our rebellious hearts isn't hypocritical ritual. The solution isn't that just that we would go through the motions and assume that God is pleased with what we bring with our hands. God was not pleased with this religious show in verses 10 through 15. It reminds me of Malachi 1.10 where the Lord said, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hand. It's interesting to me, the temple was supposed to be the place where God's people could meet with him, but God said at this point, it'd be better if you just closed the doors. Can you imagine God saying that of us today? Don't even show up on Sunday. You know what? The way you're living your life, just don't even show up. Something was wrong with the people and they couldn't fix it with their hands. Either by offering sacrifices or by folding their hands in prayer. There was something that needed to happen in their hearts first. And that's where we go to in verses 16 through 17. Where God says, Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. In these verses, God was asking for repentance because, you see, they had been going their own ways, but they were filthy and they needed to be washed. They had been doing evil. They were supposed to turn around and do what was right. They were to seek justice and to look out for those less fortunate than them. They had been rebelling against God, and in their rebellion against God, like I said before, love for the neighbor went right out the window. And again, I just want to remind you, love for neighbor is not going to be any good if it's not rooted in love for God. Their hearts needed to change, and they needed to repent. And by the way, God will hear the prayers of the repentant. So that phrase again, God is never more than a prayer away, it's true for the humble, repentant heart. That wherever you are at, even if you have lived your whole life in rebellion against God, 
Yet you come to that humble point in your life where you recognize that you have wandered away from him and you come in repentance before God. He will hear your prayer. He is pleased to hear those prayers. But there's something else that still needs to go on in the human heart and that's what we're going to get to as we get to verse 18. You see, it's not just the actions of the people that needed to change. Think about this. Even if they were from that moment forward able to completely change their actions and to start doing what was right from that moment on, what could be done about their previous sins? We can't change the past. You see, the punishment for sin is very serious. I hope you know this. I hope you know Romans 6.23, which says the wages of sin is death. It means that we all, every single one of us, by our sin, had earned a death penalty which would result in eternal separation from God. And again, even if Israel could perfectly change their future actions, there's nothing they could do to take that death penalty away from themselves. So how will God handle the sins they had already committed? Well, in verse 18, it has the feel of getting called into the principal's office. Uh, and maybe, maybe I, should, I didn't ask for a show of hands before. Maybe I should ask for one now. How many of you got called into the principal's office? I'll raise my hand. Oh, Tom, way up high, Tom, both hands, Tom? Or, uh, okay. Um, I got called in uh, a couple times, and I'm not proud of it. There, and there was one especially that I think of where I had done something that was wrong, and it got found out. And I was called into the principal's office to talk about the punishment for what, would, for what I had done wrong. And I remember just sitting there and thinking, I, I messed up, it's no good, and I deserve what's coming my way. So in verse 18, God is going to ask the people of Israel to come and talk about their sin. How is that conversation going to go? It might surprise you. Verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. As God and the people reasoned together about their sin, about the sin of the people, which stood out like crimson or scarlet, bright red, God's word for them is that it would be white as snow. Think about this, this fresh snow that we had today and how beautiful it was and how it kind of, you know, we kind of had this brown spring going on and now we have this beautiful layer of white snow. And what God was saying was even though he knew all about their sins, he would make them white as snow. So this is amazing. They had sinned. They had rebelled against God and acted as evildoers against their fellow man. God saw it all and he forgive that's the heart of our God to forgive wicked rebels like you and me it's one of the most beautiful pictures in the Bible and remember where it comes from it comes from what my, old, my, my professor called the worst chapter in the Old Testament beautiful love from God in the midst of human wickedness that's who our God is Guilty, sin-stained people receive forgiveness. Sins are washed white. This red-to-white theme in the Bible is an important one. King David talked about it as he talked about how he would be washed whiter than snow. In Revelation 7.14, it talks about how we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Our robes can be made white. It's ironic. In Revelation, 
blood is used to take away stains. But that's how the Bible has always viewed sin. Hebrews 9.22 In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Sin is so bad that it has to be washed away. But here's the interesting thing. We can't offer our own blood for our sins. If we tried to do that, we would be offering an impure sacrifice. It's only Jesus who could offer the perfect sacrifice necessary to wash our sins. That's why we can't just try to be a good enough person. I think that that might be the number one answer. If you were to go around America today and ask people, why do you think that you're going to go to heaven? I think that most people would say, well, I'm a pretty good person. But think about this. All of our good deeds, if you lump them all together, you know what else will be lumped in with them? All of our evil deeds. Our sin would taint the whole lot. And the result is that we are not a pure sacrifice that we could offer before God. That's why it's so important that Jesus lived a perfect life so that he could offer himself as our unblemished sacrifice for sins. And in that we see the heart of, the heart of God to forgive us and to cleanse us. So again, verse 18. I just want to read it again because it's so beautiful. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And then after that, God gives the people two options. Verses 19 through 20. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat, from the, best, eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So here's the crux of the matter. Will the people of God continue in rebellion or will they repent and go God's way? There would be blessing if they would obey God, but there would be punishment if they continued in rebellion. Okay, the last part of Isaiah now, verses 21 through the end, they kind of repeat some of the same themes that we've already seen, so we're going to walk through these a little more quickly. Verses 21 through 23. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. So again, it's more injustice that's going on here. They used to follow the right path, but now they had become murderers, and they were like a precious metal that had become contaminated. How would God respond? Verses 24 through 26. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. And I will restore your judges as in days of old, your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So God had a plan to avenge himself and to get rid of all the impurities. And the analogy here is of precious metals going through a fire. I saw a video once of how this happens. The jeweler takes the precious metal that has the impurities in it, puts it in a crucible, and heats that crucible up really hot. And everything turns to liquid, but the heavier, precious metal sinks to the bottom, and the impurities float to the top so they can be skimmed off. Now, if, if that were us in that crucible, that would be a painful deal. 
But sometimes we need that pain of the crucible to remind us of how our hearts have been going astray. And that's why God sent the fire here. That's how God brings about change in our hearts sometimes. And the end result, like it says in verse 26, is righteousness. God grants righteousness to us. And that's not something we can get on our own. It's only something we get through Jesus Christ. That for all of us who have placed our faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord, we are credited with his righteousness. We are treated as if we had the righteousness of Jesus. From there, we're supposed to continue to walk in righteousness as Jesus did. But again, there's two options. There usually are. The Bible often speaks of it as two options, either God's way or our way. And we see that again in verses 27 and 28. Zion will be redeemed with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. But rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. The word penitent in verse 27 means repentant, and it simply means to turn around. So the heart of repentance is that we would turn away from our sin, turn away from sin, and toward God. And then the word redeemed there in verse 27 means to be ransomed or bought back. And although it's a, a harsh picture, perhaps the best way to understand that word is to think about a slave who could not free himself. He was stuck in slavery. But somebody could come and, and pay his ransom price and then set him free. But who would do that? Who would, at their own expense, pay somebody else's debt and then set them free? Who did that for us? Jesus Christ. That's what he did in purchasing our souls at the cross. You were bought at a price. You were bought at a price. God has a plan to turn rebels from their rebellion and to bring them into a relationship with himself. But, as it says in verse 28, those who continue in rebellion will be broken. Those who forsake the Lord will perish. And it's important that we need to check our hearts here. Will we be people who continue to rebel or will we repent? We've all sinned. Will we repent or rebel? Um, we're getting close to the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And, uh, you know, Martin Luther posted the 95 theses on the door. You know what the first one was? I didn't, I didn't remember this until this week, but the first one of his theses said this, the whole life of believers should be repentance. Isn't that, I want to leave that up there for you to think about. The whole life of believers should be repentance. Or here's the way that I like to say it. We should always be willing to have a conversation with God about our hearts and the sin that is there. We should always be willing to let God shine his light on our hearts and let him tell us if anything is wrong in our hearts. And if we ever see that anything is wrong there, we should always be willing to repent, to confess our sins to God, and to ask for strength that he would help us to go in the right direction. And one of the ways that I like to say it here is that I hope that we at Cornerstone are a bunch of good repenters. Okay? I know we're a bunch of good sinners because we're all human. I pray that we would be a bunch of good repenters. God gives us his word to shine light on our need to turn away from sin and to turn toward him. Yet, as the last three verses of Isaiah 1 remind us, there is the danger that we would continue to turn away from God, that we would persist in idolatry. 
verses 29 through 31. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tinder and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. So the, the sacred oaks and the gardens of those verses just symbolize the worship of other gods or idolatry in violation of the first of the Ten Commandments. There will be punishment for those who continue to rebel. Have you noticed that theme? But I want you to see God's heart in this. Our part of the story is rebellion. And God has seen it. He knows that our hearts are, maybe you could say it with me from the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. But God's heart is that we would receive salvation, not punishment. He wants us to be saved, not to perish. And that's why our, where I love 1 Peter 2.9. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. If God wanted us to perish, he could make that happen. But look what God has done. He sent Isaiah to warn the people. He sent Jesus to free us from sin. He's given us his word and each other so that we can remind each other to keep following God. God's heart is to forgive. Our heart should be re to repent in humility, always ready to hear from God and to repent. And I just want to remind you of one thing as we finish up here. Think about what's been going on all throughout Isaiah 1. It's God's word to warn his people. Remember the important place of God's word in your life. If we are going to be people who humbly and continually open God's word and hear from him, he will guide us into what is right. Listen to how it's said in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. God's word shows us what's right, even when we're in rebellion. But we need those humble hearts. So is there anything that you need to repent of? In, in the closing moments of my sermon now, I just want you to think about your sin. And I sent out that email this week um, with your homework assignment for this part of our, our series. The homework assignment is just that you would find a quiet time and a quiet place to talk to God about your sin, to let him shine his light in your heart. And I want to encourage you, even do that today. Find some time today just to talk about God, talk to God, excuse me, about your sin. Ask him to reveal it, and then just give it to him. And if it's red as scarlet, please know that he will make it white as snow. Maybe the snow can even be a reminder for you of that today. Has your love for God grown cold? Have you not loved your neighbor as yourself? Or maybe there's some other sin that you're struggling with. Maybe it's anger or lust or greed or impatience or whatever it might be. Talk to God about it. Please don't hang on to your sin. Repent of it. The, the payment for your sin has already been offered. Jesus already died for your sins. Don't hold on to your sin. Repent. In this chapter, we see a warning. God wants us to have life, and he will lead us in that. May we not continue in rebellion. May we instead live in a love relationship with God in which he transforms us and makes us more and more holy and makes us more and more like Jesus Christ according to the truth of his word. 
Isn't it amazing to see God's gracious response to rebels? And I just want to finally close by saying, if any of you are in rebellion against God right now, just submit in humility and repentance, and you will receive mercy and grace. God's heart is for rebels to turn and to be in a right relationship with him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your, your heart, your willingness to forgive our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ, that we might be restored and brought into a relationship with you. And God, if there are any here who don't yet know you, I pray that they would, they would cease their rebellion right now and that they would receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And God, for all of us who know Jesus as our Savior and Lord already, we pray that you would help us to keep walking with you. And if there's anything going on in our hearts that displeases you, we pray that you would show it to us and that we would flee from it. So God, we come before you with humble hearts and we ask that you would strengthen us to follow the path of righteousness that you have for us. That you would strengthen us to keep walking with Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.